Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Chris Lewis. He is the CEO of Evergreen Applied Technologies. He's a graduate of Colorado State University. He's got a journal, some journalism stuff going on. He does web. He's got a little professional setup there, I can see, at his place there. So he does some web broadcasts and stuff. Uh, post-graduation, he specialized in business development, helping struggling businesses achieve profitability. Um, he's played a major role at every competitive level. He's an amateur cyclist. He plays tennis. He coaches baseball and hockey, and he has three children. Uh, maybe he's got a dog, too. We're going to find out. Um, all his social links will be posted on the um, on the getagriponlighting.com website. So you can check it out there if you want to follow him further after the show. But before we get there, we got to talk about Light Thing, Right Thing. we got to go to satco.com. That's S-A-T-C-O.com, Greg Eric. That's right. Bulbs, fixtures, decorative and functional. they got it all. Components. They're the complete lighting line. And on top of that, the service to back it. Mike and I have talked about it often where we'll just call them and ask them for something. And sure enough, they'll have it. And they'll get it to you right away, and the price will be great. So I'll check those guys out anytime. Go to satco.com. That's S-A-T-C-O.com. They do the light thing. They do the right thing. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to NAILD.org to join us. That's right. Right now, what's happening, Chris? Well, hey, real quick. Ironically, their catalog's sitting on my desk. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Right there. That was weird. That was weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the extra promotion. So, yeah, Chris, in, that wasn't yeah. coordinated. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> awesome. And, uh, you know, in looking at your websites, and I put that plural, which we'll talk about, it appears you, ha- you really handle everything lighting related from manufacturing, distribution, and retail. Is there anything you can't do in lighting right now? Well, I think we're, I think we're trying to push outside of lighting into technology and that's sort of the next step is like, because uh, lighting in and of itself is quite simplistic, but it's like, what can lighting do and how can it change spaces? Especially since, you know, we, we sort of had this COVID thing happen um, and how it affected the sports arena. Um, and and so it's like, what, how does it, how does it functionally change space? And, and like, what can we do there? Like, that's the next step is, what does that mean? And I know that the catchphrase like IOT is very popular, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to anything specific. Um, and so the, the question is like, what does it do? Like, what does it do for me? How, how does it create revenue? I think that's the big thing that people want to know is like, how does it create revenue? Um, and there are some really cool things that we're sort of looking at in that next step of like, how do we change spaces and utilize spaces to make them more interactive uh, to improve, you know, what lighting technology can be? Well, so, I, I, you said, talked about next step. You talked about creative, re- creating revenue. I think it's identifying what it is that the customer wants to buy. I mean, for when sure. You're, when you're talking about creating revenue, I mean, you can, there's negative revenue and pot, like, so there's productivity sapping revenue that people can create. Those are called casinos, Facebook, um, Twitter, like these people are are negative productivity engines. Okay. So they take time away. They addict people, video games and all this kind of stuff. They add no positive element to anyone's life in the long run. 
but they are revenue generating. And I think what we want to do is steer the industry away from that kind of a revenue generating model and keep it to productivity increasing and helping people's lives. Um, what do you propose that in that next step that does that? So there's a couple of things like, you know, the, the one that we've taken a, a good look at and we sort of were starting on it, but then shut it down like a little bit ways into COVID because the, the construction phase just came to a standstill, but it had to do with artificial intelligence and sending people to specific places. So you can use lighting technology to dictate movement in spaces. Um, and it's all psychological. So this has to do with, you know, if you're in a space in a, and say I'm in a retail environment and one space is brighter than another, sort of like if you're in the grocery store, your eyeballs are called to the freezer case where the photo sensor is not working because that one's the only one that's lit on the aisle. And so you're inherently drawn to that space. The same function happens in a retail space. If you can use artificial intelligence to guide where people are standing and where they're moving, you can guide them to products. And so it's a very simple idea of, of saying, you know, we're going to use this space and use a series of stereoscopic sensors to sort of judge where people are, where they're looking and move them to a space by dictating what space is lit and what isn't. So you're talking so, about queuing. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. It's a very fundamental idea of that. Um, and you could take it, you know, if we go back to like the sports space, we can say, well, what's like the next step there? And it's how, you know, a lot of people are doing this with technology now, but now it's like interactive. What does that space become? What is the fans, you know, what is, what is the fans interaction level within the space? Can they, can they dictate what the lighting is in an arena? Do they have an effect on it? And you've seen that with some effects, like in the Olympics where people are given bracelets um, and then there's like an infrared system that highlights what bracelets are on and which ones are off and the, the crowd becomes part of the scene. And that's sort of like a, a very low level way of doing it. You know, the other way would be to, to give users the control and sort of, you know, it could be done by poles or by remotes or something as simple as an app. And then, and then the landscape has changed and it, it just creates a, a more dynamic element to a space. Where right now it's just static. There's nothing no, hang on, happening. Hang on. Are you are you saying give the users control over other people using queuing? Giving users control of the space, so not necessarily over. No, but other hang on people. a second. Hey, we're talking about we were talking. I just want to dive into this because, like, <clears throat> if you wanted people to go down aisle three instead of aisle two, you could queue mm -hmm. them to do that using lighting. That is that is known. And we can do this. It's kind of like employing theatrical. But by then giving the actual person that you want to go down that aisle control, those are two separate issues. Queuing is controlled in, by somebody, you know, by the, the boogeyman or whoever in the, in the sky that wants you to spend more money at the grocery store. And I got nothing against spending more money at the grocery store. But I, I don't think queuing and user control of the lighting system go together. I think those are separate ideas well, you, user control would be like on a non-primary space so this goes back into like event lighting getting into the theatrical because you can't give control of the primary for a number of reasons um 
you know, be it whatever the event might be, a concert or a sports event. Um, but you can affect the ambient or the secondary systems with user-generated controls. Give me an example. So, so like if you're, you know, the Olympics is probably the best example where uh, you have secondary lighting being like in the spectator seating spaces. And that could be RGB functionality. It could be movers. It could be some sort of thing. So let's say like, you know, we want to highlight a space, but, you know, section 121, you know, voted the most votes and section 121 is highlighted and they get control to pick, you know, what the color of the space is. So it's things like that, like, sim you know, it's simplistic, but it's user engagement that's not that far away or not that difficult to sort of put into place. Um, all it comes down to is simply mapping the spaces. And then, you you know, once you have a, a simple series of maps placed, it's just a step-by-step -step function of, of saying, well, A, you know, A plus B equals C. And so this happens. Um, but that's that's one way to sort of implement dynamic spaces and make them non-static so uh that you know that's sort of the the element of stuff that i'm i've been working on on the on the side uh here and there i know we do a lot of different things but i think that's future tech that we'll see at some point like implementation because again like lighting as it is in its basic form is a commodity um what you do with it is where the where the fun part is. So how did you get you started in 2014 or Evergreen Applied Technology started in 2014? Is that correct? Right. So I was, how did you get I was it? doing well, I first was working for a company uh, out of Boulder uh, that ended up going bankrupt and then that folded into another company, uh, which was eventually sold. Um, and before that sale happened, I was the first employee there. I knew, I knew that was going to happen. And so I left and, and started my own thing. It's sort of self-preservation. Um, but, you know, we started out as primarily e-commerce. Like e-commerce, back when I was first doing e-commerce, you know, I, I was in e-commerce as early as 2006. And uh, different things, non-lighting at that point, and then lighting uh, in 2010 and we were one of the very first commercial e-commerce retailers that there was we had no competition at all um and we could sell all sorts of things just left and right i mean every day you know you could turn you could easily sell a half a million in a month with your eyes closed because it, there was literally no competition at that point um and so it was just sort of crazy, like how how quickly it exploded. And now there's so many different retailers out there. Did you ever um, actually sell 500 grand in a month? Oh, yeah. Yeah, many times. That's a lot. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I know. And, and like, you know, basically people just call you up on the phone and say, hey, I want to buy, you know, 25 of these. And boom. And, and also the cost of goods back then, you know, like we were selling LED tubes for $90 a piece and it's sort of insane like the people would even buy them uh because there was no there was no cost benefit at that point like you could never reach break even 
on energy savings. Um, there were rebates to help, you know, for early adopters at that point, but still it was, it was, it was just the hype of it at that point and what people can, wanted to buy. Can you share the name of that company? No, I can't. It, it's uh, I have an NDA there. So, Got it. um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun to see all that happen. And then, you know, with my new company, uh, we sort of evolved because I, I, I always enjoyed doing sports and doing projects and, and my background from school was, was sports and then television broadcast. And so I sort of had that element there of understanding it. Um, and we, as we got going and, and doing more project based work, like the project, the e-commerce stuff naturally leads to project based work. It's just inherently they go hand in hand. And I think that's the fear of a lot of major manufacturers, you know, what was formerly the big four, were very apprehensive about opening up the floodgates to e-commerce. And what does that mean for their traditional business model, um, their, their go-to-market, and how does it upset that sort of what happens? And so, you know, we were always uh, very transparent about pricing you know, we weren't trying to undercut. Um, we weren't trying to steal spec projects away. How many um, orders would you guys get in a day? Uh, you know, it, it, it really goes like, it's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because contractors don't work on, on Fridays. Um, mm -hmm. But probably anywhere from 50 to 100 uh, per day. But a lot of times, you know, like because you live in e-commerce, you don't even have to answer the phone. If your stuff is built correctly, you don't have to answer the phone. So it's you could take you could take 20 orders while you're sleeping. Um, mm. And that's like the big upside of it is that sort of passive revenue stream that you've now created uh, by doing, you know, by by doing the, the legwork in advance and showing people what products are and uh putting your stuff out there so it it became a big thing and and then like you know sort of how you guys stumbled upon me was through my google sort of network of stuff that i do so i i've done some work for google corporate um here and there on the side and and it started in right when covid happened we really made a transition and put way more effort into e-commerce than ever before, just sort of turned it up uh, and ended up, you know, from, from, from that point, you know, we were 60% up. And then this, this last year we were another 55% up um, and it's just massive sales, like a DIYer is doing things. And uh, so it really, like, that was a big, I think that was a big turning point for e-commerce uh not just in in like the resi market but the commercial market because it's, you know people were comfortable with buying big stuff you know like before it, it was always strange to see like somebody drop five grand on an order without calling first and now it happens more regularly where it's like boom like 9k and they never even called and, and it's like wow like that that's a decent sized sale to just put your faith in somebody on the other end. Uh, but we've taken orders with credit cards as high as a hundred K 
it's it's sort of like it's crazy what people will put on a credit card um so the but that that google stuff that we did you know sort of got us noticed um by google i ended up doing some stuff with the ceo of google um and that got me involved in this sort of bigger thing that's happening out there in the in the sphere of business which is this anti-monopoly thing from google and I'm a big advocate for them because I've been able to use what I have. I'm, I'm a small business, you know, and we, you know, we're on the west side of Denver in a small town, yet we've done sales in hang, know, hang on. five Google different continents. Is against, Google is against monopolies? Is that what you said? <laughs> no, no. I'm Google's fighting the monopoly from the, the government crackdown that's happening right now. Like uh, there were Senate hearings on it, you know. Or... Google is a monopoly, <laughs> like one hundred percent a monopoly. Depends how you look at it. Like it, no, it doesn't. Know, like for for <laughs> me as a small business owner, like what other what other way would I have to compete in a you know in a territory outside my own? How could I reach those people? What you know? What other platform is there for me to make that you know make that connection? So what you're saying could, is that Google – I just got to unpack this because it, it's blowing my mind away. Sure. So you're saying that Google does not engage in monopolistic practices over web search. Well, I'm not going to go that far to, to say that. You have like, another option on the web to advertise the tools, on that's realistic. Well, you could. You could advertise on Bing. Yeah, you could always go to Bing on, that nobody on, uses. <laughs> Right, but that's that's user choice. Like that's huh? you know, Google didn't create that. They just got there by being better. They weren't they weren't even the first to market. Netscape beat them there. Um, they were just better. But this from a small from my standpoint, like what what do I get out of it? You know, I get to reach people I could never reach before. What sure. how else could I do that? Um, and I can talk to a hundred times more people by doing the way that we do it than the traditional way. Um, there, okay. There's absolutely no way anybody else can compete. We're never going to agree on that because I would even go further. I would say that um, Sundar Pichai is an oligarch, actually, is what I would say. But anyway, so I'd even go further than Monopoly. But um, what I wanted to say was uh, there are more, and this is a kind of a weird kind of uh, aphorism, where there's more potential outcomes in chess okay then there are subatomic particles in the universe okay but only for someone looking at a chessboard who's never played chess okay so 99.99999 percent of all the potential moves in chess would never be made by anyone ever playing chess because you play chess to win and so when you're playing to win you're eliminating 99.99% of all the different moves that you could possibly do on a chessboard. So only people that don't know how to play chess would make that comment because you would never do it, right? So they say chess is impossibly complicated because of this. Well, that's actually not true. What I'm saying, to, what I'm asking you is, are you entering into, are you like with the AI and sort of this stuff, are you, in, are you making chess moves that nobody would really make? Or are, do you think that this is a winning strategy? Some of these ideas that you're coming up with on the fans with the lighting and being able to interact with it. Like, do you think people are actually going to do this? 
I think it's I, I think it's going to happen. It's inevitable that it will happen. Um, and it's one, a lighting play. It's a lighting play. Well, it's a technology play. I think the light because again, like the lighting part is the is the simplistic part. Um, there's an engagement level there. Uh, lighting is a necessary function of of existence in a in a commercial environment, mm -hmm. but it's a non revenue generating thing. Normally, you know, we're lighting up. It, it's a function, and if you can change that from you know, a static thing to a dynamic or non-revenue generating to revenue, revenue generating, be it, you know, however that, however that happens, be it selling advertising or displays. It happens like this. It happens like this. This, the, the, um, customer in the product get inverted. So like, for example, when you're, you're Google's customer, the person searching Google is the product, right? That's what they're selling to you, right? So that's an inversion. In the past, so if you used a product, you were the customer of the product, right? So if you want to create that element, what you have to do is the people under the lights that are using the lights for visibility, for illumination, are the product. And somebody else is getting revenue from that product. That's how that model works, where... You know, now, and then maybe the light fixtures are free or the lighting system is provided by Google or whoever for free so that they can have the information delivered to them from the people that are in the illumination. That's how that model inverts. I don't think that's practical in the lighting business. Well, I see it that way, but I also see it as like sort of a side thing, like, you, uh, you know, what sometimes they call a loss leader. Like, are you coming to the space for... You know, like uh, the C store is the best example here because it, it, it's like, am I coming into the space to buy chips and soda? Or am I coming into the space to buy something fantastic? Like there are there are these massive C stores that open up now that are basically like amusement parks um, where they have all this other stuff in it. And what you know, the sole purpose of those other things is to get people in there to buy the same chips and soda that they were buying 20 years ago. Uh and so that's, paying that's more the for it? well probably with inflation but yeah I, th I think they you know there is a cost to that but it's a volume play and it's also just getting people in there so there's uh, but that same example happens you know at at all sorts of other retail environments where it's like how do we get people into the store and capture their attention and it can be as simple as that so how do we get it how do we get somebody into the stadium? I, I think, especially with the evolution of, of sports on TV or sports, you know, on demand, how do we get people into the space? And you've seen stadiums morph from sort of sit down, you know, the old style fifties and sixties ballparks where all you do is you go in there, you sit down, there's a concession stand and there's nothing else. Well, now there's, there's interactive activities everywhere. You know, there's playgrounds for kids. There's, you know, batting cages, uh, you know, different events. And, and it's all that, that sort of fundamental change of getting people into the space to capture more money is essential for those guys to generate revenue. But Greg, so, how do we get, I don't see how this is a lighting play. You, I'm trying to figure out how it's lighting play. Uh, maybe it's not. I mean, the, you mentioned the technology before, but you need the lighting 
itself as a function, as you mentioned, but then you needed the capability to be dynamic. So is it, I guess, going back to you, Chris, is it a lighting play? Is it for I lighting think, people? I think it's part of the lighting play. Like it's certainly not the only thing. Um, you need other aspects to it, you know, like in, in, in terms of like, you know, queuing, you need intelligence to dictate where, how the queuing happens. Um, there's another function to that. Uh, you need, you need a, a second or a third piece to sort of collectively bring it all together. But the lighting in a, I mean, I mean, the one thing we go back to lighting, like if it isn't that let's take the inverse of that. If it isn't that, then what is lighting? Because right now it's a race to the bottom and it's a, a just a defense against Chinese influx of selling direct into the U S market. So if we don't change what happens to it, you know, then what happens to lighting? Because right now, you know, as you guys know, if you were at light fair a couple of years ago, some of the Chinese brands that were there without, without name dropping had some of the biggest booths that I, that I'd ever seen. And well, Chinese companies know how to make light bulbs more than American companies do. Oh, that's, that's the bottom so line. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like forget about it. They're just way better at making lighting than Americans are. Light source. But I think the change like the change happened a few years back when they found out they could just set up a you know an entity here in the states and sell direct. And and that really. No, I don't think started. that's what it was. I don't really. Th I I disagree with that. I mean, most like Greg and I started a company in 2014 to consult for Chinese companies, because you know we got we wanted to point out to them that Milky is not frosted. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the yeah. U.S. doesn't buy yeah. in millers, but the U.S. doesn't is, buy in millers. That is millers. hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the LED love house is probably not a good name for your company in the United States. And, oh, yeah. you know, so um, your business card says that your name is Warmy Fung. <laughs> okay. Warmy <laughs> is not going to go over too well. Okay, that may translate from Chinese oh, yeah. as being a nice person, but Warmy is not a name. So we were going to like discuss these things with them, and they weren't interested. And so I think that the Chinese, there's a couple companies that have done it well. TCP is certainly the leader in that realm, Greg. You know, of mm -hmm. of uh, of a company that has, but they did that pre-LED. I think the real driver of of it was um, people did not want to bear the capital cost of building a factory in the United States and compete directly with Chinese factories, even with tariffs. And so they chose oh, yeah. instead. The, tar the tariffs aren't enough to, to sway they that. One they bit. chose instead to rebrand or to brand, to control and teach manufacturing. And so they, Americans literally taught the Chinese how to make lighting. And now the Chinese yeah. have surpassed the Americans. And yeah, that's, um, that's, true. that's what happened. Um, and that started in 1979. Um, long before LEDs, I mean, the GE was. So the over question there. is, how does how does America then take back? You know, if they're selling direct, they're making the product, they're selling the product direct. You know, there is no middleman anymore. There's no middle. There is no middleman rep distributor. Like the rep, the distributor are gone out of that equation. No, oh, the vast um, majority. The vast majority of lighting products are sold under under um, brands that supervise the manufacturing and do quality control. I could list off a ton of them for you. So I would disagree with that statement. But the idea, one of my, I'm saying to you, the idea of take back is the wrong idea. Um, that's not, there's no taking back. There's only, 
you know, uh, can we add value differently or can we compete in a different way? Taking it back, I mean, nobody wants to, I've been to Chinese factories, okay, where you see how they make LEDs. No American would ever do that job. Oh, never. yeah, never, never. But I, now, you're, if the process you is completely is automated, it... if the process is completely automated from socket to, you know, the, the parts go into, you know, uh, Professor Sylvester McMonkey McBean's machine, and they come out on the other end as high quality LED light sources. Great. Um, but if it's, if it, it, you know, the way that they manufacture lights in China, Americans would never do those jobs. Oh, yeah. Well, the, yeah, they'll get the boards that way. Back to what you were saying, though, we'll never take it back. And we need to change what we're doing is exactly what I'm saying. Like the commodity stuff that exists, which makes up, you know, the broader 90% of what's sold two by fours and strips and all the all the boring stuff that everybody sells for, you know, 5% margin nowadays. Uh, like, how do you move that stuff and make it make it more valuable. I'll How tell you, you right now, it's really simple. Project? I'll tell you, it's, it's really simple. So as manufacturing left the United States, okay, from say, it probably, it started in 1979, okay, and then increased and increased over time to where now it's, it was not 100% America, zero China, now it's 98% China, 2% America, whatever you want, whatever the number is, okay, whether it's 80%, okay. When we used to make light fixtures in the past, their life cycle was 40 years, okay? You would buy a light fixture and it would be installed and it would last and you would change the light source and it would last. And now you can track that against Chinese manufacturing so that now a light fixture's life cycle is what, Greg, five to seven years? At best, a lot of them. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're, what we're doing is we're importing future e-waste from China, non-maintainable, you can't fix it, you know, and so on and so forth. And we're creating all that's this stuff. So that's absolutely so true. And so we, we then have to turn and resell, you know, in that seven to 10 year timeline. I think that was the, the early misconception about LED was that, you know, it was always advertised you know, 100,000 hours, 200,000. I've seen some stuff, you know, as, as I'm sure you have, 400,000 hours, 500,000 hours. Like yeah. there's there's just no way that that's ever going to hit that. Um, I like the and, best way to describe an LED fixture to somebody is to say whether it's a fixture or a tube, it lasts between two and four times of a fluorescent tube life. Yeah, well, if it's built correctly... If it's built it's correctly, thermo. it's two to four yeah. times of fluorescent. If they if they decide, you know, I've been to several manufacturers, you know, some of them true manufacturers and some of them just assemblers, and it's shocking to see how few people use thermal interface material. Like, you know, if you want to dissipate heat, if you want to build a product that is of higher quality, like that is something that's essential to making it last. Like, they, and it's just you know, cheapening the product. And, and as I heard from a publicly traded company CEO, they don't care. It's five years. Like they got to go five years and they're good with that. Like five year warranty, 
Anything past that, they don't Yeah, care. but the different the, – the, okay, so the in the past, uh, Greg, you'll know the answer to this. The fluorescent lamp warranty and or the HID lamp warranty was two or three years, and the ballast warranty was five years. But the life cycle of the fixture – now, think about this. this. This affects accounting principles, Chris, because when an accountant – when you take a capital expense, if you buy your light, lighting system outright for a building, it becomes a part of real property – as an asset, and it's depreciated over a period of 20 years, right? Somebody's got to tell these bean counters that, hey, light fixtures don't last that long anymore, bro. you got to depreciate that over three to five years because you're going to be changing those fixtures again. But guess what? If the industry was actually honest about that, nobody would buy those lights. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I see it now in, in sports. Like we... You know, we sell these projects um, and people go, well, what's the, you know, what's the timeline on this project or, or the payback on this project? And I, I'm always very honest about it. And I say, you'll never hit payback. It's never going to happen. You're talking about, like, a, are you talking about an arena lighting system? Arena, uh, a rec, a rec ball field, a rec soccer field, yeah, whatever. There's no energy play there. There's, there's no energy, no energy savings. No. There's no, and they say, well, what about the maintenance savings? I'm like, well, you know, you're never going to, when are you ever going to need to go up there and, and change it? So you're going to pay, you know, a hundred thousand plus dollars more for this system. And you could have bought the HID system for a fraction of that cost. And the HID system is still going to go 25 to 30 years. And your cost to maintain a buy another bulb or a ballast, it's minimal. And so, yeah, it's a total, it's a total, you know, sort of bait and switch you know, so the, the again, reason, like one this of the is reasons my industry, why. I need to, well, need to I mean, this is pictures. the get a grip on lighting podcast, right? right, right. So we're here um, to sell light fixtures. No, we're not. No. We're here to discuss the lighting industry and its problems. No, I mean um, like my, I got my, some pictures to sell company, to you if you're though. buying. <laughs> no, no. Right. I just mean like my company, like we, okay. you know, we sell light fixtures, but I, at the end of the day, like I will be honest with people about it. Like, you know, because they're at the end of the life cycle of their T5s or T8s or, or whatever it is that they have. Like, are we going to sell them another HID fixture? No, we don't even sell them. Like, that's not even an option for us. I don't so even know if them. anyone knows how to make those fixtures anymore. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah, what we should do. <laughs> Go back there's a handful HID of production. people still, still, that still have them, um, yeah. you know, but that it, it's getting sure. harder and harder to find this stuff. Well, there's the um, talk of banning mercury across the board in lighting. So, um, yeah, that would you know, that would kill it. Yeah. So um, the but like it, it, you know, I I go back to the whole bean counter thing. If people actually you know, it wasn't a misconception. The life cycle; those were deliberately overestimated. Okay. Oh yeah, totally. Like deliberately overestimated, and I can point to some leaders. I'm not going to say their names because. You know, I know who they are that deliberately sure. overestimated the life cycle of their fixture, the life, the lifetime of the, of the light source. Like it was deliberate. Well, they, they had no, okay. Or at a minimum, Greg and Chris, at a minimum, they had no way of knowing if it was actually ever going to last that long. Oh, That's they, the, never ran, they never ran tests to, to find yeah. out. They never ran any TM21 no. tests. Like I'm sure who, they ran. Was, no, no, I disagree with you on that. I'm sure there were some testing done. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. Excel after. <laughs> accelerated testing or whatever yeah. right but nothing nothing replaces okay when i say two or three fluorescent lamps two or three fluorescent lamps that's that is um 50 to 100,000 hours 
Okay, right. That's what I'm talking about. Now, does an does any Greg? I remember I got an email from a manufacturer way back in 2004, and it was an email from a major, and it said, "We now have a T5HO that lasts 50,000 hours." My response back was, "Make one that lasts 25,000 hours first, right?" <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah. you, you know, I mean, I, I was having so much trouble with T5HO burning out and warranty failures and all this well, kind of stuff. Well, wasn't thing. that the uh, three-hour, you can only run them three hours a day? Yeah. This is what I'm talking scenario. about. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I remember that. We've, re, we've, re, we've changed <laughs> the mathematical formula for the hour rating of our product. That's the real well, announcement. The other thing I, I find is that people, and, th and this goes back into fluorescent and, and then that, that sort of short gap we had there with induction and now LED was the, there are two numbers that exist. There's the driver number and then there's the, the light source number. And mm -hmm. I, I usually see the light source number as the advertised number. So that's that yeah. 200,000 number. And, uh -huh. you know, as I, as I talked to one manufacturer, I was like, well, you're telling me that your product is better so you can sell for a premium and it's 200,000 hours, but you're still only throwing a five-year warranty on it. What's the, you know, what's the disconnect there? And it's the driver. The driver won't go, you know, the drivers at, at above 70 C fall off a cliff. Like they cannot function. Neither will and, the LEDs. The LEDs will never well, last that long either. So, some that's, LEDs, that's... like you, you can really push them. It depends on, again, this gets back to thermal interface material and, and like the testing. No, that the I've entire industry LED. was doing two opposing things at the same time, which is like a magic trick done by, you want to buy the letter I? We're going to increase yeah. the lumens per watt and tell you they last longer. Those two things don't go together. Okay. When you, when you drive, I don't care what technology you do. When you drive LEDs, with to push more light out, there's no way that you can increase the la the life of them. I'm sorry. Now you make make incremental improvements on how those LEDs work and heat sinks and everything else, but the idea of increasing lumens per watt and increasing lifetime are two competing things. They don't go together. Yeah, I totally agree. If you're if you're trying to push, you know what's now like you know theoretical, you know upwards of. 300 lumens per watt you're going to burn stuff like um it's, it's just too hot and then and then to try to compact that you know as we always do in lighting we're trying to fit the most amount of light in the smallest amount of space mm -hmm. sure and and combining you know an intense heat source which is what light is into a small space is is just not functional and that's i mean this is another thing i find too this is sort of off on a tangent like dlc and ul like they tell us uh -oh. that the product won't catch fire or dlc will tell us what the lumens per watt is but it doesn't tell us if it's actually a good product right you know like will it fail like okay tell so me if this product will fail you know when it's sitting the over dlc a has no in interest there's no interest at the dlc See, what the, here's the misconception exactly. When people bought, what happened was the branding in the industry collapsed. The DLC emerged as the major brand in the lighting industry. And all other, it didn't matter what the brand was as long as it was DLC on the QPL. And I believe customers thought QPL stood for quality products list. 
but it does not stand uh, I've never for heard, Yeah, I've never heard that, but yeah. It actually it, stands for qualified products list. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I think yeah. clients were thinking, oh, QPL, yeah, it's the quality products list, right? They had <laughs> no idea about quality whatsoever. They weren't even measuring it. Yeah. And, it, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, the DLC, and I mean, uh, there are good folks down there. They work hard. They are, from, from the beginning of this whole thing, they were way out of their league. When it, Greg, I mean, is that fair to say? They had no idea what was going to happen. Their labels were being put on things based on lumens per watt. And customers were taking that. And this is, I'm telling them how their brand reacted in the market. Customers reacted to that DLC and utilities yet reacted to that DLC thinking that that meant that was like a, a CUL or a CSA yeah, or a, 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 a UL for quality for product yeah. that was, that it was the warranty was good and everything else. And that the DLC was never about that, but that's what customers thought it was about. Well, and what's ironic now, though, is back to your point, though, the lumen per watt, the higher we push the lumen per watt, the better the rating on DLC, oh. which inherently means the worse the product is going to perform likely. It's 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 like this oxymoron of, of stuff that exists. Um, Magical, you know, <laughs> put them together and so, what do you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. <laughs> So we're, you know, like we're, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm fighting this battle of like trying to be, trying to be honest and transparent about things. But at the same time, we have to sell life fixtures. Like, no, but how do we wrong. do it in the most wrong? You got to be honest. Well, we don't. Uh, well, That's no, I, I mean, like, at the same, you know, disclosing, yeah. you know, disclosing what, you know, what I actually think of it. And I've, I've don't taken try a light fixture apart. There's no trying. Yeah. I'm Yoda right now. No trying. You well, be honest all well, the time, the, Chris. And here's the issue with e-commerce, though, is that you only have typically 80 characters to make a connection. Like that's your, you know, if you guys go on the, online and you want to buy something, you're like, I want to buy a two by four chopper. And you pick the lowest price one. You read the title of it. It's two by four, 60 watt, you know, multi-wattage chopper. Boom, sold. Like that's what... 90% of people who buy that product, that's all they read. Like huh. they read that first title. And if, if it meets the parameters of what they're looking for and the price, well, that's is okay, their problem. Then that's not, I know, but that's problem. what I'm saying is the, is the issue of like, look, how if you listen, if somebody's more... online, listen, if you're buying online and you're buying hundred thousand dollars lights without calling somebody, that's your problem. But Chris, we've gone 40 minutes here. Greg's got to go to Winnipeg. I don't know why anyone would go to Winnipeg. Okay, <laughs> in, in my, January, my I don't right know. Uh, that's not a it's good fishing. idea. It's fishing, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, but you we'll know what? It. Before we go, I want you guys. I want to thank all the listeners, Chris. Um, but before we get into all that, Greg, we got to go back to the gangsters, buddy. Go to satco.com, buddy. S-A-T-C-O.com. Still printing catalogs sitting on Chris Lewis's desk. He's not cruising the internet. He's pulling out that Satco catalog. Nice and papery. He's flipping through it, Greg. You love those catalogs. And so do I, I do, actually. It's something that's different they, that you don't get from a lot of other people. And they sit there and you can look at them and you can sell based on they're that. They're one right? of the few who actually still put the effort out. They're the only to, ones, to baby. Make a catalog. Yep. 
Yeah. yeah. So go to satco.com, get your catalogs. And they got tons of them. I was in the room where they make them in the marketing department where they print them out right there. Love those Satco catalogs. That's satco.com. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, Greg, NALD.org. Get associated, get educated. And of course, Chris Lewis, thanks for, for being with us today. You can check out all Chris's social. Um, yeah, he's got LinkedIn. He's got he's got a bunch of things here. We'll put it up on the getagriponlighting.com website if you're interested in all that. And, of course, if you made it to the end, all you colleagues out there that don't have a podcast, we love you guys and gals. So stay with us. Coming out hot for 2022. We're doing our conversation series. That's right. There's other people that are going to record Get a Grip on Lighting podcasts. That should be fun. There's one already out. So check it out. But for now, thanks for listening.